and turn with me to Jude verses 3 and 4 this morning as you're turning there I want to mention something I should have mentioned earlier probably but um, last Sunday night if you were here you heard me mention it but this box that's sitting here on the on the platform on the uh, Lord's Supper table uh, the top is leaning up against the rail uh, is a box that um, uh, Chad uh, Pierce built for us and for the uh, for the new building, and in it you'll find a Bible. It's a Bible I've preached from many times since we've been here, and uh, it's open to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For it is written, for the righteous man shall live by faith alone. And so it's there, uh, and, and after today we're going to bolt on the top and in just a week or so, when they pour the slab for the, uh, in the sanctuary area of the new facility, that is going to be buried in the slab immediately under where this will sit on the platform. And it will be there for all time. Maybe sometime hundreds of years from now, if they start excavating to see what kind of strange people lived in Somerset, they might dig that up and open it, and they'll read Romans 1, uh, 16 and 17. So anyway, I thought you, you might want to come out and look at that. It's kind of a neat thing to see. Uh, don't try to pick it up. You'll get a hernia. It's 38 pounds, the box itself. And so uh, it will be secure in the, in the slab underneath the uh, pulpit at uh, the new home over on uh, Oak Leaf Lane. Hear the word of God. As we come to Jude's writing this morning, as he's talking about the purpose of writing this letter. It's a brief letter. We read it the first Sunday in its entirety. Uh, and the last two Sundays, we've dealt with verses 1 and 2. Uh, but in verses 3 and 4, he talks about the reason, the purpose for which he's writing this letter. He said, Beloved, or some translations say there, Dear friends, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt it a necessity. I felt the necessity to write you, to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down or delivered or entrusted to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the reason he wrote it. He starts out by saying, listen, I really wanted to write to you about our common salvation. The, the salvation that binds us together, the, the salvation that binds every believer together, even in this day, not just in Jude's day, but the salvation that is common among us, that is, a salvation that is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It's a salvation and a gospel that talks about Jesus Christ becoming man, God taking on flesh, the God-man Jesus living among us, living a perfect life, dying on a cross as a substitute and as a sacrifice, being buried in the grave and lying there for three days, and then three days later coming forth out of that grave, resurrected, showing his life, showing that death could not hold him, and then seeing him even uh, for, for four days and finally ascend into the heavens to be to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. I mean, 
Jude says, here are the kind of things I wanted to write to you about. I wanted to talk about our common salvation. I wanted to rejoice in you that you believe the same things I believe and the same thing the other churches believe. I wanted to rejoice in the fact that, that you, were, you were believing what is the, the truth that's been entrusted, that's been handed down from the apostles to the church, that you were believing orthodox Christianity, that you were believing exactly what the Word of God teaches, and you were following that, you were believing that, you were living in that, I really wanted to write about that because there's great joy in writing about that. There's great, there's great excitement in writing about that. And there's a lot to just rejoice in when we talk about our common salvation. But, he would say, I, I really felt the necessity to write to you about another matter. I wish I could have just been really upbeat, positive, and, and, and not had to say anything negative at all and, and just could have celebrated with you what, what a great salvation we have because we do have a great salvation. Now, he kind of dealt with that in verses 1 and 2 when he talked about what a believer is. We're the called. We're the beloved of God. We're the ones who are kept for Jesus Christ. He, he kind of hit on some of the main points there that, that God calls, God preserves, and, and, and God loves. I mean, it's just a, it's a matter of saying this is the essence of it, but I wanted to expound it so much more. I wanted to spend so much more time in it. But I felt the necessity to write you about something else. I felt the necessity because I'm hearing things are taking place. I felt the necessity to write about something else because I've seen what is taking place in many of the churches. Now realize, this was just a decade or two after our Lord established the church. This is just a, a few decades after, after everything has been established and the churches have been established. And yet, even in that brief time, there are certain things going on that Jude felt like, I've got to say something about. I've got to point this out. I've got to, I've got to challenge you. I've got to call you to something that perhaps you are missing. And the thing he says is, I, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing to you. That, that word appealing there is a word of great passion. It's a word of great insistence. I, I just felt like I had to appeal to you at the deepest level that this is what you must do as a church. You cannot become lazy. You cannot become complacent in, in everything about the Christian life. But I, I want to appeal to you to do what is necessary to stay strong in Jesus Christ, to continue to glorify him, to continue to present the true and the living gospel, this true common salvation that we share. Evidently, the church in which he was writing was facing a danger a danger of missing the whole point of what Christianity was all about. A danger of hearing false teachers who, he says, he uses an interesting word there, who have crept in unnoticed. I, I, he says, I think there's, I, there's something you need to see here, that, that while you are still living in light of that common salvation, there are things taking place around you that if you're not careful about, if you're not guarded about, will begin to eat away at the foundation of the faith, will begin to eat away at the foundation of your own personal faith and the faith of the church, and will cause great harm and great destruction if you're not careful, if you're not, if you're not attentive. And so I'm appealing to you. I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you. This is a necessity that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. 
I'm appealing to you to contend. The word contend there means to exert an intense effort on behalf of something. It's a word that's used in other places in the New Testament to talk about an athletic game where there's a, there's a participation by a runner or by an athlete, and they are contending. They're contending for one thing in, in common. They're contending to win the, the prize. They want to finish the race well. They want to get to the end and, and receive what is given to the winner. And, and what he's saying here is, I want you to contend for the faith. Now that word faith is, is, is the Greek word pistis, which many times in the New Testament is used as a personal faith. Placing your faith in Christ Jesus. Placing your faith in Christ alone. You know, this, this, this subjective faith that I have in Christ... But here Jude doesn't use it that way. He uses this word faith as a, a definer, if you will, for, for true Christianity, for the, the bulk of the, the doctrinal foundation that we live by, that we have. In, everything that's taught by the apostles back in Acts chapter 2, it's the same thing that Luke talks about when he talks about the early church. He says, and, and, and they were continuously devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching can be described as the faith. It's what is handed down. It is what is entrusted. And the word he uses there that has been handed down is a word that other places is, is translated entrusted. And there's that picture there that here the apostles are. They have interpreted Christ for us. They have given us the facts of doctrinal teaching. And now the apostles have, if you will, entrusted us with that treasure. Paul talks about having been entrusted with the treasure of the gospel. Paul talks about how this is a treasure and, and we possess it because we have been entrusted with it. When he writes to Timothy in the, the, the passage that Brother Todd read earlier, he warns about false teachers in that passage. And, and at other places in his, his letters to Timothy, he talks about how this is something that we are to guard with our hearts and guard with our lives. It is, the, it, it is that which has been handed down and has been entrusted to you and me 2,000 years later. 2,000 years later, we still have the essence. We have the facts. We have the truth of the gospel. And, and Jude here is saying to this church almost 2,000 years ago, and now is saying to you and me also, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith. Contend earnestly, if you will, for the gospel, which has been handed down to all the saints, the saints being believers, the church. The, the one who is the repository, the one who uh, Paul calls the, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And we're to uphold that truth. We are to stand upon that truth. We're to stand under that truth by way of, of submission to it. He says to this church, and he says to you and me, I, I want you to contend for it. When, when you see error, I want you to contend for truth. When you see error or the potential of error, I don't want you just to say, oh, well, it's no big deal. You know, a little, little error here and a little error there, as long as you've got mostly truth, that little bit of error won't affect a whole lot. But, but I go back to my analogy or illustration of if, if you were to get a letter tomorrow from whoever your water company is, Somerset, uh, water or, or southeast or southwest or, or wherever you get it and, and in that letter they were to say to you listen we want you to let you know that, that our water is 98% pure 
Now, there has been some farm products, waste, that have kind of slipped into the water supply, but it's only 2% of it. So don't worry about that there's some animal byproducts in the water. It's only 2%, 98% of it's pure. Don't worry about it. You're not going to drink that water without boiling it, filtering it, and probably purifying it with some kind of chemical because just 2% makes the water absolutely disgusting. And, and what, what Jude is saying here is, is a little error here and a little error there is a problem. Because we want you to contend for the faith which was once for all handed down, once for all delivered to the saints from the apostles, from the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, ultimately from God the Father himself. It's been given to you. Stand by it. Live by it. But... These certain persons have crept in unnoticed. It's interesting. These persons have crept in unnoticed. They didn't come in saying, Jesus isn't really the Son of God. They didn't, they didn't come in saying, listen, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Don't worry about how you live. They didn't do that. They didn't come in saying, listen, there is no God. Atheism lives. They didn't do any of that. But they crept in. Crept in in such a way that they were unnoticed. They looked like everybody else. They talked like everybody else. From an outward appearance, they were just like everybody else. But they began to teach. They began to teach things and live in such a way that was not in accordance with the faith as Jude calls it. You know, I want to give you some just general principles of how we look for that type of person. The type of person who can creep in unnoticed. Now, somebody comes in tomorrow or next Sunday or, or today, walks in and, and says, I, I object to what you're saying. I don't believe there is a God. We'll know immediately we're not going to put them in a teaching position, right? We're not going to say, boy, you speak very eloquently. We're going to give you a Sunday school class next week so you can teach eloquently your error. No, we're not going to do that. But that's not what's happening here. They were creeping in unnoticed, stealthily, quietly, looked like everybody else. But what, were they, what are some of the things Scripture warns us about in relation to people who will do just that? Paul told the Colossian Christians that, that sometimes they will come in and pretend that they are stricter than everybody else. You know, they come in with, with sort of a, a, a superiority of, of morality. You know, we don't, we don't do any of those things that you do, some of those things. You know, we're, we're, we're superior than, than, than most people are because we've just, we understand it better. Paul said in Colossians 2.18, he said, let, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and in the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. It's only going to be some that are going to come in. They're going, they're going to try to defraud you. What does defraud mean? It means uh, take away your treasure. Take away your joy. Take away your understanding of truth. 
They're going to defraud you. They're going to trick you. They're going to, they're going to lead you astray. Don't let anyone keep defrauding you of, of your prize, that is Christ Jesus, by talking about their own self-abasement. I am I'm more holy than you because I've given up everything. You know, I, I've, I, I'm better than you. I, I worship the angels. I, I've had visions. I, I, I really think a lot of myself and think I know a lot. Sometimes they'll come in pretending they are stricter than, than you are, than everybody else, and so they will start teaching a type of legalism, a type of moralism, that says, if you'll get as strict as me, then you'll really understand what the gospel is. If you'll, if you'll get as strict in your life, if you'll work hard and you'll straighten everything out and you'll put everything aside except what I say, not necessarily what the Bible says, but what I say, then, then you'll really understand it. Paul says they'll just, those legalists, those, those, those moralists will just steal your joy away. They will defraud you. Some come in with a, with a claim to a, having a special spiritual meekness about them. You know, they're just very humble uh, in, in, a, in, in sort of a phony sort of way, in sort of a, a self-serving sort of way. Uh, Jesus warned about that in Matthew 7 when he said in 7.15, he said, Beware of the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Nothing's more humble than a sheep. No, nothing's meeker than a sheep. Nothing's more helpless than a sheep, as far as the animals go. But, but Jesus said those will come in with this false humility, a special spiritual meekness, they claim. But what they are, they're wearing a sheep's clothing. They're wearing a sheep's skin, but they're really ravenous wolves. They come in as sheep in order to, to work their way in unnoticed, as Jude said, unnoticed, but then they throw off the disguise and they start teaching false things. Some even come claiming a superior gospel. You know, the Galatians had that problem, didn't they? The church at Galatia was struggling with these people that were coming in and saying, well, yeah, you know, the, the truth is you've got a pretty good gospel, but ours is better than yours. Ours is better because ours is Jesus plus some stuff. Ours is faith in Jesus plus doing something else. And, and you've got to do this in order to really, to, to really excel in the gospel. And our gospel is superior. Paul said to the Galatians in, in 1, 6 and 8, 6 through 8, he said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not really another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Let me tell you something. I think I gave you this equation the other week. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus something equals nothing. And by that I just mean in the gospel of Christ, it's all about Christ. It's not about Christ and then doing something for Christ. It's not about Christ and then taking away a, a, a self-afflicted asceticism in your life. It's not saying, oh, I have Jesus and now I've got to do this other in order to really have the gospel. No. He said, listen, don't be led astray by a different gospel. You are called by the grace of Christ and, and don't be disturbed by those who want to distort the gospel of Christ. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ, 
alone. Period. If anybody comes in and says it's by grace, through faith, in Christ, and then something, so they're just disturbing you. They're just distorting the gospel of Christ. Or, or Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.4 when he said, for, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you're, you're going to be in real trouble. There is no different Jesus. There is no different spirit. There is no different gospel. You, you know, it's amazing that in 2011, 2,000 years after all of this, there is no such thing as a new and improved gospel. There is no such thing as a new and improved Christianity. Oh, now we, we may change some methods and we may do a few things differently here and there, but as far as the message goes, as far as the gospel goes, there is no improvement on what was preached and taught and, and proclaimed 2,000 years ago. And if we start trying to make it better, you know, I, I do hear preachers sometimes saying, you know, we really need to make the gospel more relevant. You can't do that. The gospel is relevant. It's not, it doesn't need to be made relevant. It is relevant. When it's proclaimed in truth, when it's proclaimed in its purity, as Jude is calling us to contend for. Others come in and they say, well, the gospel that, that we preach and the gospel you must now believe is a gospel that is, 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 is earned by self-denial. And, and self-denial is a part of the gospel. There's no doubt about that. Jesus said, Jesus said, if you come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, if, if, you, if you come after me, you are to deny yourself and, and, and just put everything aside and follow me incompletely. He said that to, to the rich young ruler, you know. And, and it wasn't the rich young ruler's wealth that was a problem. It was his, his attitude toward his wealth. And he said, listen, if you want to follow me, go sell everything you have and come and follow me. And he went away because he had much. But some will creep in and say, well, it's the self-denial that really earns the gospel. You know, it's the self-denial that, that causes Christ to receive me and accept me. No, that's not it at all. It's his grace and our response in faith in Christ alone. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, said, but, but what am I doing? But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false prophets, false apostles, deceitful workers, distinguishing themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What Paul is saying there is some are coming in, they're boasting something in themselves. What they've given up, what they can do. And, and, and Paul made it clear to the Galatian Christians that there's only one place that Christians should and can boast. And that's in the cross of Christ. So may I never boast in anything but the cross of Christ. May, may I never boast about how good I am or, or what I've accomplished or what I've done or 
anything else. May, may all my boasting be in what Christ has done on the cross and through the cross what he's done in me. May I only boast. If you're going to boast, boast about Christ and his work. If you're going to boast about anything, boast about the fact that you were helpless and hopeless and Christ through his grace touched your life and brought you to faith in him and gave you something. Boast in what he has done, not in what we've done. Some of these men who have crept in, persons who have crept in unnoticed, who were marked out long beforehand for this condemnation, they, they come in claiming a greater knowledge and new and superior ideas. In the passage in, in 1 Timothy 6, he says that, that Todd read earlier, he said, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. There's no new knowledge. There's no greater knowledge. There's no superior idea or superior knowledge to Christ. Trust in Christ. I mean, all of these things are, are, are very subtle and have to be watched at and guarded against. I mean, I can give you example after example where each one of these has happened in close proximity. He goes on to say they were marked out long beforehand, marked out for this condemnation. They're not believers, but rather they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What in the world does he mean by they, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness? The legalist seeks to turn the grace of God into works. But you have to do these works in order to be right with God, in order for Christ to really receive. You have to do these things. That's the legalist. The, the licentious person, the, the one who is, he's talking about here, they come in and they say, oh, we've experienced the grace of God, and so you know what? We can live any way we want to. It's the opposite of the legalist. He says, oh, listen, we've been forgiven, and so we can commit any sin we want to commit. Now, be careful here that we don't make sins that we look at today. They're just cultural matters, uh, things we're talking about here. He's talking about things that the Scripture talks about clearly. Uh, you know, the, the idea of, oh, we're, we're, uh, we, we've been forgiven by God, so we ought to be able just to, 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 have, to have relationships with anybody we want to. And I mean intimate relationships, sexual relationships. I mean, uh, yeah, it's true that, that when we're not forgiven by Christ, then adultery's wrong and fornication's wrong and all these things. But now we've been forgiven for all our sins, and so we can go about doing those things. That's no big deal. There were people in Jude's day and in Paul's day that would go down to the, to the false gods, the, the, the idolatrous worshipers to their temple and they had temple prostitutes around and, and they would go down there and they would cohort with them for a while and, and sometimes they would come back and say well you know I'm, I'm, I'm forgiven by Christ so there's not, there was no, nothing wrong with that and, and Paul and Jude and all the others say no you got to understand there is, a, there is a definite morality that's not moralism that's not legalism but there's a definite holiness that comes with being in Christ it, it's not something you do 
but it's something that he does. If you have real faith, if you really know the grace of God, if you really have had his life touch your life, then, then there is a change. Do you agree with that? I mean, Scripture makes that clear. You're born again. You become a new creature in Christ. You're, you're no longer what you once were. You're different. It's not a matter of saying, oh my goodness, I've got to, do I have my, I've got it here somewhere in my pocket. Let's see, a checklist here. Okay, I didn't do this today and I didn't do that today and oh, I kind of slipped up on that one, but God will forgive me of that one and I didn't do, you know, it's not that at all. It's a matter of knowing the grace of God is the greatest power in your life and he changes you. He changes you. He takes away evil desire and places within you a desire for holiness. These persons are ungodly. They do not understand what godliness is. They are ungodly persons, and they claim to have grace, but they really have licentiousness. License. Say, man, because I'm in Christ, I have a license to do anything. I love what Luther said in light of this. He, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, you know, I really believe the scripture teaches trust Christ and do whatever you please. Now, he was not talking about what Jude is condemning here. He was talking about if you really trust Christ, if you're really in Christ, then you ought to do whatever you please because what you please, what you desire, will be what the Spirit of Christ places in you to desire. Your desires will be His desires. Your purpose will be His purpose. So trust Christ and do as you please. But the key to that is not doing as you please. The key to that is trusting Christ with all your heart. The key to that is believing in Christ and, and, and committing your life to Him in its totality. Not just what we see in Jude's day and in our day so clearly that's just sort of an easy believism. I think that's one of the greatest sins of the church today. One of the greatest heresies of the church today. Just easy believism. You know, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, go through a baptismal water and everything's great. Don't have to worry about anything. You've covered it. You've got the insurance. It's all covered. No, the, the gospel seems to indicate, the gospel clearly indicates that when you are in Christ, it's more than praying a prayer, walking an aisle, being baptized. When you are in Christ, there is a change that takes place for his glory and for your good. And, and when, when, when we're really in Christ, it's, it's not a matter of, oh, I want to do what I want to do. It's a matter of, hey, I want to know what he wants in my life, and I want to be obedient to that. Not out of a, not out of a legalism, but out of a love for him and a, a gratefulness to him for all that he's done. It's a submission to his will, submission to his purpose, that he might be glorified through us. He says, listen, beloved, I, I just want to talk to you about our common salvation. I, I just really wanted to, to, to rejoice in all that Christ has done. But there's this necessity because there are those persons who have crept in unnoticed. I want you to notice them, Judas saying. I want you to watch out. I want you to contend for the gospel, contend for the faith. I want you to earnestly fight for the truth. Because if you start giving up the truth here and here and just saying, well, it's okay here not to worry about it. Just 
sooner or later it will be like a cancer that will destroy the body the church the body of Christ well there's more I could say about that and I think I will next Sunday but I want you to remember what he's saying here so clearly it's, it's applicable to our day I gave you some general principles of some of these false teachers today six of them, seven of them to be exact but next Sunday we'll look at it more specifically we'll talk about idolatry they, they go hand in hand false teaching leads to idolatry idolatry that we don't always see but we desperately need to understand let's pray together Father our common salvation is such a great and glorious thing that Jesus Christ died as our substitute as our sacrifice and that by your grace we can enter into that relationship by faith through faith and and Lord we can know that reality our our common salvation in Christ by Christ through Christ for Christ is is just something to celebrate and rejoice in but Lord we know that in Jude's day and in our day, Satan really, really wants to pollute it as an angel of light. He, he wants to distort it in such a way that is not dramatic, perhaps at first, but just subtle, stealthily. And Lord, we've been called to contend for the truth. Help us, Father, to do that. Father, I pray for men and women, young people who may be here this morning that have never known the grace of God in their life. They've never trusted Christ. And I, I pray this morning your Holy Spirit would work in their life. Draw them to yourself. Father, I pray this day that you might be glorified in all that we do, all that we say. Father, we commit this time to you. As we sing that great hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, we are a debtor to your mercy, a debtor to your grace. And Lord, we rejoice in that. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.